Criminology is a true crime podcast that may contain discussion about violent or disturbing topics. Listener discretion is advised. and welcome to episode 70 of the criminology podcast i'm mike ferguson and this is mike morford morph how are you this week i think like you i'm tired tired after the true crime podcast festival in chicago yeah it was good time but you know it was one of those things at least for me i drove in on a friday uh spent all day you know hanging out with people and meeting meeting fans meeting other podcasters and then i drove home saturday and it was about five and a half hour drive. So I was whooped, man, when I got home. Yeah, it's a lot of running around, and but it was fun. It, it was a good, good tired because you're meeting so many people and talking with them. But I, I had a good time. Yeah, I know. I enjoyed it. We had a lot. We have a lot of fans in the Chicago area that were able to stop in. A lot of people that probably, you know, have not been to CrimeCon, maybe will never go to CrimeCon. But because they live in the Chicago area, they were able to pop in for this pretty easily. And I mean, I thought that was a great thing. Yeah, it's being in that location in the central part of the country, I think, helps a lot. You know, I've been to Chicago a number of times. I I love Chicago. I love downtown. It's such a cool place. The one thing I will say that I hate is driving around Chicago. And, And you realize why so many people that live there never drive you know they take the the train in they take the whatever it is it took me from the time i got to chicago to go seven miles to get to the hotel is about an hour man it was that's just brutal i'm not used to that you know living where i live everything's pretty spread out unless there's some type of major accident on a road or highway you're not you're not uh, experiencing that those types of um you know backups yeah, the, and the traffic was pretty tough. When I left the airport to go to the hotel, I asked the cab driver if it was going to take a half hour, and he laughed at me and said probably more like an hour and a half, and the traffic was just crawling. But coming back on Sunday from the hotel to the airport, it was wide open, just nobody on the road, and the guy was doing like 80, so I made it back in like 15 minutes to the to the airport coming back, so it was the flip opposite of it. So the good thing, Morph, is CrimeCon's done. This true crime podcast festival is done. You and I, for a while, don't have any major things going on, no travel. So we can focus on episodes. And I think that's a good thing. It's good to have a little bit of time where you're not worrying about traveling and stuff so you can focus on making episodes. Yeah, you know, that, that type of travel really cuts into your time for sure. All right. We have some new Patreon shout outs to give. We had Miranda Rollins, Leslie Greenwood. Jonathan Go Ducks Clark. So Jonathan likes the ducks. Lindsay Shank, Jen Blinn, and Kat Cantor. So some great new support. We really appreciate that. Yeah, thank you very much for that support. And anyone that would like to help support the show on Patreon can do so by visiting patreon.com slash criminology. All right, Morph, let's jump right into our episode this week. It takes place in 1983. 
a beautiful young woman was brutally attacked, sexually assaulted, and murdered while working in the basement of a gamble store in Reed City, Michigan. And her death was so violent. It was so gruesome that really only a few details have been released publicly. And even though there were customers and other employees upstairs, no one heard or saw a thing. And 36 years later, her case remains unsolved, leaving the question, who killed Jeanette Robertson? Jeanette's sister, Lana Jarvie, joined us for this episode to discuss Jeanette's case, and you'll hear from her throughout the episode. Jeanette Robertson was born to Ralph and Marion Fisher on October 25th, 1955, in Detroit, Michigan. Jeanette had two sisters, Marlene and Lana, and one brother, Kelvin. Her parents later divorced. At around age 16, Jeanette married Alvin Robertson, and the couple had two children, Jennifer and Kelvin. Jeanette was strikingly beautiful, with blonde hair and a captivating smile. She was happy, kind, and a likable young woman who would do anything for anybody. There was nothing to indicate that the young wife and mother would be the victim of such a heinous and brutal crime. Um, Jeanette was a homegrown girl, I guess. That's the best way to put her. Um, Personality-wise, like the 1950s homemaker, um, crocheting, sewing all her kids' clothes, baking. Um, If a neighbor needed help, she'd give it. Uh, Gardening. Just the girl next door person. You talk to anybody that knew Jeanette, um, she was just a very, very kind, loving person. It just, it, it just boggles the mind that somebody could do this. And with what was done is just, it's unreal. Because Jeanette was um, a very friendly person, very outgoing. If she saw, she never met a stranger, let's put it that way. And she was very naive. I think she probably turned her back on whoever did this and just, (laughs) they didn't like that. I think that whatever transpired down there, Jeanette made this person extremely angry. I mean, to the point where they probably didn't know what they were doing. I mean, they knew at the beginning and they knew at the end, but they didn't know in the middle what they were doing. In 1980, Alvin, Jeanette, and their two small children relocated from Georgia to Reed City, Michigan. This is a small community of around 2,400 people. Jeanette's mother, Marion Fisher, lived in Reed City and worked as a city clerk there. Reed City is known as Michigan's Crossroads because it sits at the crossroads of U.S. 131 and U.S. 10. It's roughly 70 miles north of Grand Rapids. In 1982, Jeanette got a job working in the pet department in the basement of Gamble Store, which is now called Reed City Hardware, located at 114 West Upton Street. Going back to work for Jeanette took some getting used to after raising her young children, but she was excited and she was happy to have the extra money. It was mostly for the money part of it. Um, Her kids were in school. So, you know, that would be a perfect job for her. She loved animals. The animals at the store were brought in by Bonnie Engels from Freeland, where Bonnie owned a shop. 
Bonnie had previously worked in the Gambles pet department, and it was Bonnie's husband, David Engels, who owned and managed Gambles. Jeanette's sister Lana was worried about Jeanette working by herself in the basement. In Lana's mind, she felt that the store basement where the pet section was located was dark, silent, and secluded, and very conducive to someone robbing Jeanette. But Jeanette didn't seem worried. She was happy to be down there. She said it was quiet and peaceful, and she loved working with the animals. At around 11.30 a.m. on Wednesday, January 19, 1983, Gene Johnson, who was the director of maintenance at Reed City Hospital, walked into Gamble's to buy some supplies. Gene was a regular customer. Jeanette Robertson greeted him, and she kindly asked Gene if she could help him, and he jokingly responded, I know this store better than you. It was the first time he had met Jeanette. Gene knew the store owner, David Ingalls, had hired someone to work in the new pet department in the basement, but he had only been down in the basement twice. Once when David purchased an adjoining business next to Gambles for expansion, and the other time when David and Bonnie set up the pet store. According to the Michigan State Police report, the original Gambles store is located at 114 West Upton Avenue which is the main business block of the city of Reed City, just to the west of US-131. It was separated from adjacent buildings by brick or block walls. However, after the present owner purchased the business in 1980, the building to the east, 112 West Upton Avenue, was also purchased. And in the wall separating these buildings, doorways were installed, both on the main floor and in the basement, to give access between them. Gene Johnson asked Jeanette where everyone was. She told him that they were unloading the truck. It was truck day at the store. Gene looked around and saw the store owners, David and Bonnie Ingalls, unloading merchandise through the two back doors. David's brother, John, was also assisting. Two other employees, Flossie Ernest and Angie Tilly, were there manning the two cash registers, one up front and one that was located in the middle of the store near the basement stairs. Jeanette told Jean she had to take care of something in the pet department, and then she headed downstairs. Jean was only in the store for about 15 minutes before he left. At around noon, Jeanette left the store for a break, telling her co-workers that she had to go pick up one of her children at school. After Jeanette dropped her child off at the babysitter, she returned to Gamble's to continue her shift. Between 3.30 and 3.45 p.m., customers Terry and Gladys Quakers entered Gamble's to purchase something. The Quakers both worked for the Reed City School District and were on their way home from work when they stopped at the store. Gladys overheard someone in the store saying, well, her coat is here. A few minutes later, Angie Tilly went downstairs to the back room near the pet department to get something. What she saw in the basement haunted her for the rest of her life. Lying dead in a pool of blood was the beaten and battered body of Jeanette Robertson. Frantic and distraught, Angie ran upstairs. After taking one look at Angie, Flossie thought she was having a heart attack and called John Engels, who was upstairs eating his lunch. When John arrived, all Angie could do was point to the basement. John then ran downstairs and came back up a few minutes later shouting, Close all the doors. John called police. The call came into the emergency center as a heart attack in progress, according to an EMT on the scene named Gary McGee. 
Gary was interviewed by author Jenny Decker a few years ago. Jenny was in the process of writing a book on Jeanette's case that was later published under the title Redacted, A Search for the Truth About the Murder of Jeanette Robertson. In her book, Jenny wrote, according to Gary's incident report, the dispatch came in at 4.06 p.m. and EMTs Gary McGee and Pam McDonald pulled up in front of Gamble's at 4.08 p.m. Customer Terry Cooker also saw one of the first officers. This was Officer Finkbeiner, who arrived on scene. And it was pretty quickly after that, the investigation into Jeanette's murder began. But you also had a large number of curious onlookers that started to gather on Upton Avenue in front of the store. Obviously, they knew something was going on. Gary McGee saw Angie Tilly as he and Pam entered the store. She was visibly upset, and at this point, Gary and Pam had no idea why they were really there. The two EMTs walked down to the basement with Officer Finkbeiner. At the rear of the room was a door. Finkbeiner opened it, and both Gary and Pam saw a woman just inside the door. He told Jenny Decker the woman was lying beneath a rack of animal cages that was elevated off the floor. Gary went to assist the victim. But Pam froze on the spot after seeing the gruesome sight and began crying and shaking. Gary told author Jenny Decker, quote, I feel bad about it now, but I screamed at her to go upstairs. Since Pam was too distraught to help, Gary attended to Jeanette by himself. He recalled that she was not breathing and her body was cool, but not cold. So he believed the murder hadn't happened right before he got there, but several minutes before at least. So, Morph, we've got to talk about this for a minute. Imagine this scene. You are Angie Tilly working at a department store. What you would think is a pretty safe job, right? Day in, day out. You never imagine in your wildest dreams that you're going to come up upon this type of scene, right? A woman, a coworker, dead in such a gruesome fashion. I mean, that's not what you think about when you get up in the morning and head to work. You just never imagine that's going to happen. And I think to underscore, you know, how violent this death was, you have a trained EMT officer, Pam McDonald, that by all accounts was so visibly shaken that she began crying. This is, this is a woman that you know, in her job sees a lot of carnage. So I, I I do think it tells you how bad this site was. And I think we have to talk a little bit about the location that this happened in. It's like a secluded basement. I'm picturing a lonely, dark, creepy atmosphere down there in this basement away from everybody else, coworkers, customers. It just seems like a secluded place. And I'm getting these flashbacks of you know, a horror movie where something like this happens. Well, it's definitely not the layout that I think most of us are accustomed to in a department store. This is unusual from probably what most of us are used to. A Dr. White from Reed City Hospital was summoned to the scene and he arrived around 4.13 p.m. He easily determined that Jeanette was dead, but still he called the medical examiner who would make it official. 
when Dr. White first arrived, you know, he thought he was there to help out somebody who was having a heart attack. And so, you know, in the beginning, he really didn't even notice a puddle of Jeanette's blood and he inadvertently stepped in it. This puddle of blood was located outside of the entrance to the back room. It was about eight to 10 feet away, definitely closer to the entrance to the back room than to the stairway. Police would conclude that the initial assault most likely occurred outside the room where Jeanette was found and that she had been dragged or otherwise moved to where her body was located. The puddle of blood was still wet. Dr. White later told one of the responding officers, Officer Mike Primo, that he may have stepped in the blood. Officer Primo told Dr. White that they might need his boots to match or rule out against any footprints that they might find during the investigation. As it turned out, Dr. White wasn't the only medically trained person who tried to offer help. A nurse who was walking by the store, who also happened to work at Reed City Hospital, saw the commotion and ran into the store to help. Obviously, all of these people were scrambling to try and save Jeanette or offer help, but what they did was possibly contaminate a crime scene or disturb possible evidence. And I think that's such a tough thing. My assumption is, Morph, as a lifesaver, right? As someone who is trained to save lives, your first thought is not, this is a potential crime scene. I need to be careful. No, you're in there trying to offer whatever aid you can. None of those other thoughts are going through your head at all. And I think that's especially true in this case, because everyone that was there initially thought it was a heart attack, not a a bloody crime scene. Yeah, you're right. I mean, if the call had come in that it was a murder, then maybe, maybe people act differently. Again, you know, I think about this nurse who, you know, is walking by. She knows something's going on. Her training kicks in and she thinks, I can possibly help. Well, she's not a trained police officer. That's not where her training lies. So her only thought is, how do I help save a life? Authorities remained on the scene for several hours. Jeanette's body was eventually removed from the store around 9 p.m. Reed City Police notified Jeanette's mother, Marion Fisher, who in turn, along with the city manager, James Nordstrom, notified Jeanette's husband, Alvin Robertson, who was at home at the time. And you have to imagine getting that call. Alvin Robertson as a husband, how devastating and shocking would that news be for you? And then to have to relay that to your children, to your family. Lana Jarvie recalled for us getting the news that her sister was dead. Well, I had just gotten out of the shower. I was seven months pregnant at the time. And I get this knock on my front door and I lived downstate at the time. And there's these two young state police officers standing there and they said, you need to call your mother. And they wouldn't tell me why I needed to call my mother. So I went next door and called my mother. My brother answered the phone and he says, Jeanette's been murdered. And I said, you know, that really isn't. And I said the F word funny. And he says, no, I'm serious. And I said, how? He says, 
I can't tell you that she was murdered. I said, okay, um, I'll be up there as soon as I can get packed. I, I guess the best way I can put it is when you're growing up, you don't expect anything like that, especially in my family. It, it just, it, it seems surreal. It was like, this is, this is not happening. When I get up there, it's going to be a big joke. Like, you know, they're playing a prank or something, but it, it just, I don't, it never hit home. It still really hasn't. I mean, I never got to see her in her coffin. To me, that would be closure. I would know she was dead. But I was not allowed to see her body. So it just doesn't seem real. Jeanette's murder investigation was really a team effort between police jurisdictions because working together on this investigation were the Reed City Police Department, the Osceola County Sheriff's Department, the Michigan State Police, and the Northern County's Evidence Service. Detectives interviewed all the store employees the next day at the police station, and the medical examiner performed an autopsy on Jeanette Robertson. Many details of that autopsy, to this day, have never been released, including details about the sexual assault. But what we do know is that the attack was extremely vicious. Jeanette had been badly beaten with several different blunt objects. One of the reasons given by officials as to why they haven't released details is that they believe they're too horrific for the public to stomach. This has been widely reported in the media. Police have never said what type of weapons were used in the attack due to the ongoing investigation. Officials estimated Jeanette was killed sometime between 1 p.m. and 4 p.m. We know that she was last seen by other employees around 1.30. Detective Sergeant George Pratt of the Michigan State Police Post in Reed City told the media that they had no motive or suspect in Jeanette's murder. Reed City had not seen a murder like this since eight years earlier when a man named Frank Kronsky murdered his estranged wife. For reasons unknown, police became interested in a man that had been in the store the day before the murder, but they got word that he was leaving town. So they stopped the bus he was on in the town of Big Rapids. This is about 12 miles south of Reed City. And they took this man in for questioning. After they interviewed him, they didn't believe that he had anything to do with the murder. And so they let him go. A witness came forward who was in the pet department of Gambles on the day of Jeanette's murder. This witness was a man named Carl Johnson. He had some gerbils that he wanted to sell Jeanette. Carl had bought gerbils from Jeanette originally, and she told him that if they had babies, to bring the babies back in, and the store would buy them to sell. So that's what brought Carl to Gambles that day. Carl arrived between 10 and 11 a.m. He said his car was broken down, and a guy named Tom Hawkins had driven him to the store. When Carl arrived, Jeanette wasn't there. Carl told police that he waited in the basement pet department area for about 15 minutes. And then he went back upstairs and asked the manager when Jeanette would be back. The manager told Carl that Jeanette's husband had been there a couple of times and she might have gone home with him. Carl didn't ask any further questions and his friend Tom drove him home. 
Later, Carl had his wife, Elkie, take the gerbils back to the store for him, but she called Carl from the store and said Jeanette had been murdered and that the police were there and wanted to question her. Carl also claimed that in the weeks following Jeanette's murder, he talked to Gamble's owner, David Engels, and the Engels told Carl that he was convinced that Jeanette's husband did it. He said that Engels claimed it was unusual for the husband to come into the store as often as he did on that day. And because of that, he was convinced Jeanette's husband killed her. And more if we talk about this all the time. When a person is murdered, it's the people that are closest to them that are looked at first. So you have family members and then friends, and in particular spouses, right? Or significant others. But for unknown reasons, police ruled out Jeanette's husband, Alvin, as a suspect in his wife's murder pretty quickly. And shortly after being ruled out, Alvin packed up their children and moved back to Georgia. And I think this is one of those things that you can look at and say, is it strange? Is it not strange? You know, first of all, my understanding is that Alvin doesn't have any family of his own in Reed City. Right, the, the family they had there was Jeanette's mother. So from that point of view, maybe you understand that he wanted to get back to Georgia where he probably had more of an infrastructure, especially as it related to family. But on the other hand, you look at it and you say, you know, your wife's just been murdered. The police are still looking into it and you pack up and leave. I, I don't know. I mean, for me, I don't think I get that. I would want to stay close. I would want to be involved. I want to know who this monster is that killed my wife, and I want them to pay for what they've done. Police questioned some men in the Meadowview Apartments, the same complex Alvin and Jeanette Robertson lived in. In particular, they seemed to focus on two men, and authorities questioned both men multiple times in the months and years following the murder. Carl. The man that wanted to sell his gerbils to Jeanette on the day of her murder knew these two men and said that one of them spent as much time as he could with Jeanette and that she was very patient with him. In Carl's opinion, this man was in love with Jeanette. Police have always believed Jeanette's murder was a crime of passion. Jeanette may have turned down the advances of an admirer. Carl's wife, who we talked about, and Jeanette were friends. And Carl's wife allegedly told author Jenny Decker that she was the one who found Jeanette's body. According to Elkie, she had gone into the store with the baby gerbils and had gone up and down the stairs looking for someone to help her a few times. Nobody seemed to know where Jeanette was. Elkie said that she left the store, but later returned with the gerbils around 2 p.m. According to an excerpt from Jenny's book, Elkie went downstairs, no Jeanette. She waited in the pet department for what she said was about 20 minutes. Nothing. No Jeanette. She went back upstairs to ask where Jeanette was, and a female employee said she was at lunch. Elgie said that this process was repeated three or four times. She would go back downstairs to the pet department, wait 15 or 20 more minutes, then go upstairs and ask if Jeanette had returned. The employee kept saying she was at lunch. Then after the last check upstairs, 
she thought perhaps Jeanette had just gotten too busy with birds and did not check to see if a customer was outside. So she pressed against the door to peek in, called her name, and then saw Jeanette on the floor. Elkie said that her hair was red with blood, her face beaten in, and there was a pool of blood around her head on the floor. According to Elkie's account, she ran upstairs to inform the woman she had already spoke to several times. It's unclear if this woman was Angie or Flossie. Elkie told Jenny Decker that she couldn't remember what she said to the employee and that it was a blur. Elkie didn't remember seeing anyone in the pet department when she was down there looking at the fish in the aquariums. They were installed within the walls between the back room and the pet department. There was a good chance that if someone was moving around back there, she would have seen them. Elkie claimed she saw nothing out of the ordinary. But I think what's tough is that these claims by Elkie contradict the statement of Angie Tilly. If Elkie had been the one who found Jeanette's body that day, then why did Angie and investigators say it was Angie? It sounds like it's possible that Elkie blended in some of what her husband Carl had witnessed earlier that day. So I I think you have to say this is somewhat mysterious. It's somewhat baffling, right? All of these things that Elkie has said don't match with a lot of accounts from other people that day. And, and you have to ask the question, is she misremembering is, you know, has she made some stuff up? And if so, why is it because she knows more than what she has said, or is it that she wanted some sort of attention from an author writing a book about Jeanette's case? I don't think you can rule that out. A couple of days after Jeanette's murder, prosecutor James Tulaski spoke with a newspaper in the Reed City area called The Pioneer, and they reported that Jeanette's cause of death was a blow to the head from a heavy blunt object. In this article, it was reported that police were looking for two women who had purchased fish equipment that day and may have witnessed the crime. They went on to add that the women were not suspects, but police felt that they may have important information concerning Jeanette's death. But these women were never identified back then. And despite the mention of these two women in the news and efforts by police to find them, they've never been identified. The newspaper reported that Jeanette had a good working relationship with her fellow employees and It added that there had been no reported problems in the store during the past few weeks. Authorities also checked into the possibility of someone hiding in the basement before the attack, but they couldn't find any evidence to support that. On Saturday, January 22nd, 1983, Reed City Police Officer Theodore Ted Platts was interviewed by Michigan State Police Investigators regarding his attendance at the Gamble's store on January 19th, the day of Jeanette's murder. He's the only person listed in the Michigan State Police report as having been interviewed on that day. About a month before Jeanette Robertson's murder, Ted was involved in a drunken altercation in the men's bathroom of a local bar. Michigan State Police were called, and he was forced to leave the bar. Platts was later terminated from the Reed City Police Department in February of 1983, just weeks after Jeanette's murder, 
The exact details surrounding his termination aren't known. On Sunday, January 23rd, just four days after her murder, Jeanette Robertson's funeral was held at McDowell Funeral Home in Reed City. But the weather was extremely bad. This is January in Michigan, so there was no burial. But 200 mourners showed up to pay their respects. Jeanette was later buried in Woodland Cemetery in Reed City. By February 1983, this is just weeks after the murder, police requested the public's assistance in identifying a white male who they believed may have had information relating to the murder. The unknown male was between 20 and 30 years of age with light to blondish brown hair. He stood about 5'9", and weighed approximately 170 pounds. It was said that he was possibly wearing a blue jacket. Based on several witness accounts, including employee Flossie Ernest's, police produced three sketches of this man, and they showed them to the media. The mystery man was believed to be in gambles sometime between 2 and 3 p.m., shortly before the estimated time that Jeanette was killed. Flossie was interviewed by author Jenny Decker in 2014. She told Jenny that she had seen this man in the store before. While she didn't know his name, he had previously bought pet supplies in the pet department at Gamble's, so she figured he owned a pet. Detective Pratt and Detective James E. Southworth of the Osceola County Sheriff's Department stressed to the public that while officers were interested in speaking with this man, he was not considered a suspect. They hoped he may have seen or heard something that could be useful to the investigation, but the man never came forward. After this man did not come forward, Jeanette's mother, Marion Fisher, wrote a letter to her daughter's killer, which read, To the murderer of Jeanette Robertson. Jeanette was a wonderful person, not only to her family and friends, but to every person she ever came in contact with. She tried to help all creatures when they needed help. Humans, birds, fish, plants, and animals alike. Her heart went out to everybody and everything. She is one of God's children. Yes, she had a heart. A heart as big as the universe itself. I love her. Everybody loved her. Except one person. You. Maybe you didn't know her. And then again, maybe you did. But nevertheless, from the moment you committed the greatest sin against God and his children, you were condemned to hell, a hell that will follow you every moment of your days, a hell that will increase in velocity until it will not let you live any longer on this earth. Our great God in heaven is the only one that will ever be able to help you now. Maybe, just maybe, He will find it in his heart to forgive you of your great sin and have mercy on your soul. Jeanette's soul is with her God. Her human body is lying in a coffin and her husband and children are mourning for her just as I am. It will be hard for them to begin their lives again without their mother and wife. With God's help, they will do it. However, there is still a shadow hanging over them. You, Jeanette's murderer. My plea to you is to confess your sin and ask for God's mercy. By our great God, I appeal to any person who was in the gamble store on that fateful day or anyone having any information, no matter how small it may seem to you, to come forward. 
Your little bit of information will help put the puzzle together. Please get in touch with the state police, sheriff's department, or the Reed City Police immediately, and may God bless you. Signed, Marion Fisher, Jeanette Robertson's mother. So I, I think more if when you read this, there's a couple of things that are evident. You know, number one, this is a mother who loved her daughter unconditionally. She thought the world of her. You can also tell that Marion Fisher was a very religious person. I mean, she she brought religion into this letter multiple times. The other thing that I take from this letter is that it doesn't sound like Marion had any thoughts whatsoever that Jeanette's husband, Alvin, had anything to do with her murder, or at least she didn't put it in this letter. I think her pain really comes across in that letter that she wrote such a heartfelt letter. And if the killer read it, it didn't work because he never responded to it. And I get writing the letter. I I get it. You're pouring your heart out. Maybe it's cathartic. Maybe you really think that by sharing these words, it will make someone come forward. But how many times does it really work? If you're able to take a life, this is, this is what I believe. I don't think this type of letter is going to get to you. And all of a sudden you're going to say, yeah, you know what? I better come forward. I better turn myself in. I, I just don't see it. I don't, maybe it works 1% of the time, but I just don't think it works very often. Maybe we're dealing with a killer that just doesn't have a conscience. As I believe most of them don't. I mean, there are some, right, that commit murder and then immediately feel horrible about it. You know, it's, there's different types of murders. You and I cover a lot of different types of murders. The problem is we don't know what type of murder this is. And we don't know what type of murderer we're dealing with. Eventually, Jeanette's case went cold, but that didn't mean police weren't still hunting for Jeanette's killer. As we mentioned earlier, the investigation focused on people in Jeanette's life. Current investigator Detective Sergeant John Forner of the Michigan State Police said recently, we always start in the inner circle of the victim, those closest to the victim, and work outward. Alvin was a suspect at the time, the husband. We also mentioned earlier that although we don't know exactly how Alvin was ruled out, he was ruled out. But part of the Michigan State Police report in Jeanette's case reads as follows. To determine that the husband of the victim, Alvin Robertson, had been notified of her demise, Detective Sergeant Southworth went to the Robertson residence. Alvin Lee Robertson was interviewed at his home. He was advised of his constitutional rights, which he advised that he understood and waived. It was learned that he was employed by Kaiser Unitest in Marion, Michigan, working the first shift, 7 a.m. to 3.30 p.m., but that he is laid off for this week, January 17th through January 21st. He advised that he and his wife had been married for 11 years. It was the first marriage for both of them, They have two children, Kelvin, who's eight years old, and Jennifer, who was nine years old. They moved to Michigan on August 12th, 1980. Prior to coming to Michigan, they both had been employed at Costal Auto Parts. And it's after this entry that pages of the report are blank. 
in her book, Redacted, Jenny Decker wrote, Whatever information Alvin Robertson supplied to investigators on the day his wife was murdered remains unavailable to the public, as does almost every word of every witness statement included in the Jeanette Robertson murder investigation file. What we do know is that Alvin and Jeanette had recently separated. Alvin was having an affair with a woman he later married. I don't think Alvin was very happy up here, and it's rumored that there was an affair going on at the time. I don't think she knew about it. Um, I don't know what her reaction would have been, actually, because she was a Jehovah's Witness, and Alvin wasn't. So I don't, I don't know. So, Morph, I think this information from Lana is interesting. I mean, Alvin is having an affair, which does seem to support a motive to murder his wife. But Lana also says that she does not believe Jeanette knew about it. So if she doesn't know about it, is the motive really there? And maybe it is just from the fact that he wants to be with someone else. He wants to end the relationship. You know, people murder their spouse because they don't want to give up anything in a divorce. We know that. We've seen that, you know, a lot of times. Then you couple all of this with the fact that Alvin was laid off in January 17th through the 21st during the time that his wife was murdered. That's strange. You have to say that's strange. Also, it was reported that he was in the store several times on the day of Jeanette's murder, something that employees said was very odd. And I think it was odd because he was probably normally at work. He didn't have the ability to pop in and out of the store a lot of times during the day. But, he, you know, even with all this, right, police ruled him out as a suspect. I think the big problem for me, and I'm assuming it is for you as well, is that the information as to why they ruled him out is not there, right? That part is very unclear. That adds to the mysterious nature of this case. Now, what I will say is Lana doesn't think that her former brother-in-law, Alvin, killed Jeanette, but I think she does believe that he may know more than what he has revealed. I personally don't think he had anything to do with it, but since we've talked, I think he might have known who did it, and if that's the case, then I want him prosecuted. One thing's for sure. Whoever killed Jeanette Robertson had a lot of rage during the murder. As violent as the murder was, it seems like a sure thing that Jeanette's killer would have had blood all over him. But if so, no one reported seeing a man walking around with blood on him. So how would he have gotten out of the store without being seen? In a community the size of Reed City, it's hard to believe nobody knows who killed Jeanette. In fact, it's more likely that someone does know and maybe withholding information for a number of reasons. Maybe her killer still walks Reed City's downtown sidewalks. Lana has no doubt that whoever killed her sister was a monster. Jeanette was like five foot one, probably 105 pounds. She was tiny. And the person that did this caused enough damage to kill her four times over. There's that, a person out there that, that has no regard for, for, for human life at all. None. Over the years following Jeanette Robertson's murder, 
Police continued to follow up on leads, including one that came in about Jeanette receiving obscene phone calls in the weeks leading up to her murder. When more, if that sounds eerily similar to a big, big case that we did, right? Golden State Killer was notorious for making obscene phone calls before murders, after murders. And if this person was the one making the calls and then later killed Jeanette, then as deranged as Joseph D'Angelo, the Golden State Killer, was, maybe this killer was just as deranged. Yeah, I don't, I don't think you can rule that out. Maybe we'll talk about it a little bit later. I don't know. Again, it adds to the mystery of this case. Is this someone that coveted Jeanette, couldn't have her, wanted her, she rebuffed this person's advances, and in a fit of anger, killed Jeanette? Or was this a person that killed a lot of people and Jeanette Robertson happened to be one of them? I mean, this is just something that right now we there's no way for us to know. But this lead about the obscene phone calls didn't produce enough information for an arrest. You know, throughout the years, suspects came and went, but the family of Jeanette Robertson have never given up that her case will be solved. Just a few years ago, family and friends of Jeanette started annual walks in Jeanette's memory in Reed City. The purpose of these walks is to keep Jeanette's case alive in the community so that more information might come in and her case may finally be solved. In 2014, police reviewed old interview notes and evidence to come up with some new theories. Reed City Police Chief Chuck Davis confirmed that they were investigating four new suspects, but police haven't released further information regarding those suspects. In 2017, a state police task force promised to take a fresh look at the case to find out who killed Jeanette. Detectives were putting together binders full of background information and ordering evidence collected at the time to be resubmitted for new testing. Detective Sergeant John Forner hopes that evidence found on items of clothing or items that may have been left behind by the person responsible may lead to new forensic leads to follow. You know, Once again, police from the very beginning have been extremely tight-lipped about what they have or don't have. So perhaps they have DNA to analyze. And if so, it's possible that they can develop a profile of the killer. But as is always the case with old DNA evidence, the question is, how well was it collected and preserved? Connie Swander, director of the Michigan State Police Forensic Laboratory, was quoted as saying, just because the evidence is old doesn't mean it's not useful anymore. And don't forget, and our listeners should know as well as anyone, DNA science is always evolving. New technology, such as contact DNA, retesting for trace evidence, and even familial DNA are ways that this case might one day be solved. Police have not been very open about what they do or don't have as far as DNA in Jeanette's case, but based on what Lana told us, it seems as if they may have something to work with. My brother was not down there in that store that day. He had to, he had to have, he had to give a sample. Um, there was a couple of other people that were not in that store that day. 
they had to give samples that the people that were in the store didn't have to. DNA aside, perhaps a deathbed confession might provide answers. Until there are answers, Jeanette's family will continue with their annual walks to honor Jeanette. They also have Facebook pages set up to discuss her case. If you have information about the murder of Jeanette Robertson, please call Reed City Police Chief Chuck Davis at 231-832-3743 or the Michigan State Police at 989-773-5951. You can also call the Michigan State Police Crime Stoppers tip line at 1-800-SPEAK-UP. We'd like to thank author Jenny Decker for allowing us to pull some of the information from her book, Redacted, A Search for the Truth About the Murder of Jeanette Robertson, for our research. If you want to read more about Jeanette's case, you can find Redacted on Amazon. Of course, thanks also goes out to Jeanette Robertson's sister, Lana Jarvie, for joining us in this episode. And thanks to Debbie Buck at TrueCrimeDiva.com for writing and research assistance in this episode. As always, if you haven't done so, go out, give us a five-star rating. Keep telling your friends about the show. All of that goes a very long way towards helping new people find the podcast. If you want to find us on social media, you can find us on Twitter with the handle at CriminologyPod. You can also find us on Facebook by searching for Criminology Podcast. And we have a podcast discussion group on Facebook called Criminology Podcast Discussion and Fans. So in wrapping up this case, Morph, it's a very intriguing, mysterious type of, you know, unsold murder. It does go back a ways, right? We're talking about 1983. I think the tough thing for me in this case is just not knowing what evidence that the police really have. But you look at the advances in technology, especially DNA technology, from 1983 to today. We know. There are a lot of things that police can do today that may lead to finding out who killed Jeanette Robertson. And I think that's exciting. And I don't know if that's the right word to use, but I think it is. I, I think it's exciting that police have all of these new tools at their disposal that they didn't have, not only in 1983, they didn't have them five, 10 years ago. But the question always remained, what were they able to collect? Like we said, how well did they preserve it? And will it be in such a condition that they'll be able to do what they need to do with it? And one of the frustrating things to me in this case is it's a small town, yet nobody knows who the two women that were in the store that day buying fish equipment were. They've never come forward the mystery man who the composite sketches were created of, he's never come forward. Whenever we talk about these small town cases and there's it's not a big community, you think somebody would be jumping forward with saying, I think I know who this person is. And the fact these people never were identified and chose not to come forward to help the case, that's frustrating to me. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I, I would go further to say that in a very small community – you know this was a big deal. This was a this was highly covered. Everybody in that community knew about it. So if you were those two women, if you were that man and you did not have anything to do with the murder, don't you think you would have come forward 
in a small town to say, hey, I was there. I'm probably the person that you want to talk to. I think that's mysterious. And it also probably gives some credence to maybe those individuals had something to do with this. Because if not, why not come forward to help out? And even if at the time they were afraid to come forward, it's been, you know, three and a half decades, you would think by now they could come forward if they're alive still and say, hey, this is what I saw. This is why I didn't come forward. And that might help the case. Yeah. You're saying if they didn't have anything to do with it, but were scared because maybe they saw something that they shouldn't have seen. They were scared for their own safety. Is that what you're talking about? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Because that we know that does happen. People are afraid sometimes and rightfully so. That if they come forward and and tell what they know, they might put a target on their own back. But that's it. That's the case of Jeanette Robertson. And and I don't know more if we, we don't know all the details. We said that up front about the murder. My thought is just saying that this was a gruesome and violent murder. I don't believe does it justice. My thought is from everything you read, even though the details aren't there, this was extremely gruesome. I don't, I mean, I don't even know how to say it, but hopefully police will continue to work on it and they'll get that one break, that one break that leads to finding out who committed this heinous murder. So that's it for another episode of criminology, but. As always, we'll be back with you again next Saturday night. So until then, I'm Mike Ferguson. And this is Mike Morford. And we'll talk to you then. Take care, everyone.